Hi again, folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zevna Kajimam, again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you with us. Also, a big thank you to everyone who signed up for our webinar on March 8th. We've already got people from all around the world, the Americas, Japan, of course, um, Europe, Australia, and plenty of Asian countries as well. We've now figured out a way to share a link for anyone interested in joining the webinar, even if they haven't registered in advance. So we've updated the webinar page with that link as well. So you can just join in on the day or halfway through, etc. And we'll uh, link to the webinar page in the show notes. But if you do register in advance, you'll also be able to submit your questions and topics for discussions in advance, which we would recommend doing because our time limit is about two hours on the day. So it's going to be first come, first served um, for the questions. And obviously, pre-submitting those questions is the best way to make sure that they're actually answered during the Q&A segment of the webinar. So yeah, that's on March 8th, 8 p.m. Japan time, which is really March 7th for our friends in the U.S. and Canada. Should be great. Looking forward to seeing you with us uh, then. But if you can't make it, the recording will be made available online afterwards uh, as well, of course. Okay, so today is an extra long episode again, which is something that we do once a year. And that's going to be a throwback to 2019 and the first few episodes of 2020. It's a compilation of our best episodes of the last 12 months, or rather the episodes which you thought were the best based on download numbers. And as always, there are a few surprises in there for me. Not all the episodes I personally thought were really good made it to the list, which was a bit disappointing, but quite a few which I thought were less than stellar did. Uh, but the people have spoken, so here goes. The best of NTI's Japan real estate podcast for the period of 2019 going into 2020. And these are just highlights from those episodes. If you want to listen to the full episodes, we'll also put in links to each and every one of them in the show notes as well. So for the first episode, and we're going in chronological order here, the first episode that caught your attention last year seems to have been a deal analysis episode. Those are always popular. And this one in particular was a deal analysis of a small residential building. Obviously, um, with prices having bottomed out in 2012, um, although they've since picked up again in all major cities, there are um, and were plenty of affordable deals all around the country. And now that there are also investment loans available to some extent for both residents and non-residents of Japan, buying entire buildings uh, is more uh, affordable, more doable, and gives us the best of all worlds. So higher growth potential, which comes with a larger land footprint and creative freedom to lease out short or long-term residential commercial. If you recall, zoning in Japan is pretty lenient in most areas, so you can do both with most properties. And of course, also the freedom to tear down the building when it becomes too expensive to maintain as it gets older and repurpose the land parcel for any other idea you might have in mind. So here it is, our deal analysis of a small residential block in Fukuoka City, Japan. So this building, which is only nine years old and has six apartments, as mentioned, 125 cubic meters in total and sitting on a land parcel of 120 square meters. The units are one bedroom apartments constructed with a separate kitchen and a loft bedroom. Modern, spacey, full of light, and they tend to be in high demand from young, single professionals. Seven minutes walk to the nearest station, Befu Subway Station, as mentioned. And this was purchased for about 46 million yen, so about 416,000 US dollars at today's rates. Purchase costs like legal and registration fees, stamp duty, purchase tax, the Realtors Commission, and our own representation fee come up in total to around 4.5 million yen more, so just under 10%. And monthly running costs, including insurance, management, communal power and water, gardening, and internet, which is another fantastic added bonus for potential tenants. These come up to about 41,000 yen out of the total 261,000 yen in gross rental income. So to put that in dollar terms, returns are about 24,000 US dollars a year net pre-tax at current exchange rates again. And this makes for around 5.2 net pre-tax return per year, per annum. And due to the age of the building, it's quite unlikely that annual repairs, renovations would be anything beyond 5% of that total on average. Now, we haven't had any repairs or maintenance or renovation there so far, but this deal is only about four months old, so it's a bit too early to tell. Generally speaking, 
Once the building reaches 10, 15 years of age, this estimate would slowly start creeping upwards. So from an average of say 5% towards 10% or so, maybe at the 20 year age mark. But again, this is just a statistical average. So over the course of the structure's entire life cycle, these are the sort of average that you can expect for maintenance, repairs, and renovations uh, of the structure. Okay, now, as much fun as it is purchasing properties at four or $500,000 and upwards, there are a lot of investors out there who start out with much smaller budgets. And being the world's second biggest property investment market, and also the only country in the Asia-Pacific region where there are actually no limitations on foreign ownership, so almost all properties here are freehold, Japan does offer a huge range of properties at all budgets. Um, investment properties here in areas with safe and stable tenant bases can go for as low as 20,000 US. And if you're looking for properties for your own personal use, it can be even lower than that. But the sweet spot for relatively high rental income investments, typically condo units, tends to be somewhere between 40 to 80,000 US. And this is also conveniently enough the budget that many first time investors are comfortable um, kicking off their portfolios with. So it's perhaps for this reason that the next episode was very popular as well. This is from our Q&A sessions, and it's a question that was forwarded to us by a US-based investor who wanted to know what would be the best investment strategy for someone with a budget of somewhere between 50 to 100,000 US dollars. So here are some highlights from that episode. How would you recommend an investor get started uh, with Japan Properties uh, who has about fifty to a hundred thousand dollars or so to start out with in terms of diversification uh, what locations to consider and so forth all right look forward to hearing your answer and have a great one bye okay so good question and one that we do get quite a lot someone has a starting budget that's not too high just fifty or a hundred thousand dollars or so and they're wondering what's the best way to utilize that budget well, like all things related to investment, the answer is, of course, it depends. Firstly, it depends on whether it's really 50K or 100K or somewhere in between. So on a budget of 50K, options could be pretty limited. You're going to be buying just one or two small apartments, basically. Most likely not in mega cities like Tokyo, Yokohama, Kawasaki, uh, Osaka. So the options before you are either second tier cities, places like Sapporo or Fukuoka, where you can still find properties at thirty to 50000 Maybe still something in Nagoya or Kobe, although Nagoya specifically has just about surpassed that budget in the last year or two. And that's most likely going to be just one property. So a studio or one-bedroom unit, maybe two bedrooms in Sapporo at this budget, if you're lucky. And depending on location and the level of involvement that you want, you're going to be able to lease that on either a long-term or a monthly basis. Most likely long-term, simply because of this budget, you're going to be going for an older, smaller unit. The only option to turn it into an attractive monthly rental apartment is if it's in a really, really central location. So in that case, people may consider leasing out even a less attractive property just due to its location. In third-tier cities, and that's not a dirty word, so places that we've mentioned here before, like Kumamoto, some of the bedroom communities around Tokyo, say up to 45 or 60 minutes by train. These are also excellent investments for long-term tenancy purposes. And in those places with that budget, you might even be able to grab two apartments because there are still apartments available there at just over $20,000. So if you've got 50,000, you might be scraping uh, the limit, but you might be able to get two of those. But in most cases, uh, at this budget, you're probably looking at something a bit less central in an area which can be fine for standard Japanese tenants who just want to have a cheap place to live and within walking distance to convenient public transport, but not likely to be super attractive to holiday makers, traveling business people, etc., who are the kinds of people who normally rent out by the month. But still, older and smaller units in reasonable locations generate good yields. And you're most likely, depending on the city and suburb, going to be able to generate at least 6% net pre-tax, even with a standard long-term lease, potentially higher than that in Sapporo. Or if you manage to find an older, tiny little studio, again, in a city center, you might even be able to rent it out by the month, which would bring your yield up even further. Now, if your budget is closer to 100K, that's when things start getting a bit more interesting. 
So for starters, you can definitely be looking at more locations or more than just one property. Up to three of these older and smaller units in places like Sapporo or Kumamoto, both of which are very good for long-term tenancies, uh, barring again winter months in Sapporo when it can be harder to repopulate a property because of the snow. Or you could go for a single property, but something nicer and fancier and in a better location, which you can then definitely monetize as a monthly rental with a bit of furniture, internet connection, and potentially double the long-term yields. Not to mention that if you're someone who visits Japan fairly regularly, say once every one or two years, having a property that's being leased out on a monthly basis means that you can plan your trip uh, so that you can use the property yourself when you're here, and that saves you an extra thousand or two thousand bucks every time you visit. And really considering the typical hotel room sizes in Japan, it's much more comfortable to have your own home to stay in when you visit. Now, on the upper end of that range, if you really are closer to 100, you can even find pretty reasonable apartments to buy in Tokyo, Yokohama, and Osaka at this price level. Again, might be a bit smaller and older, but in good, convenient locations. And that makes it ideal for both the monthly lease program, again, and for your own use. Now, lastly, and this is for those among us who are really into Japan's countryside, uh, people who tend to come here for skiing, hiking, uh, temple or onsen hopping, etc. 50 to 100K can also get you a beautiful old house on a nicely sized plot of land in many, many places out of the city. So you won't be smack in the middle of an onsen town or right next to the slopes in uh, Niseko, but definitely within a short drive to some of these beautiful holiday spots in the mountains somewhere. And if you're the DIY type or you plan to save a little bit more in the future and do the place up when your funds allow it, you could really turn it into a dream home over a period of time. This is also an interesting path to pursue if, like many of our clients, you're dreaming about setting up a guest house or traditional inn somewhere in the countryside one of these days. And for many people, especially those among us, again, who really love Japan and all that it offers, this is a hell of a retirement or even early semi-retirement dream well worth pursuing. Right, so options galore from the low tens through 100,000 or two. And again, the sky's the limit. Our portfolios can have any number of properties, the more the merrier, particularly because diversity and hedging are really key to any successful investment portfolio. And it's exactly this reasoning that leads us to the next episode that won your download votes. This one was a conversation with Ben Sheeran from the super popular website and blog Retire Japan, which is the best English source of information out there for anyone looking to start planning and building their portfolios in a way which would support them if and when they wish to stop working and start enjoying their retirement years, whether that's early retirement or further down the track towards the end of our lives. And while the website and blog are geared mainly towards people um, uh, living in Japan, Ben's knowledge and expertise are really global. So the principles we've discussed during our conversation do apply to anyone, anywhere, regardless of the types of investments and strategies that they're putting in place to support themselves later on in life. So here are some highlights from our interview with Mr. Ben Sheeran of Retire Japan. Well, my, my standard um, sermon on the blog is, um, you start saying you've got to take responsibility. Like, we sometimes get people who say things like, oh, you know, I'm, 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 my job's not good enough, or my, I have to spend money on my family, or um, being in Japan makes it difficult to do things. And, and all of those may be true, but I think at the end of the day, you have to take responsibility for your situation. Mm. Uh, whatever difficulties you have, then you have to overcome them. Right, whatever your situation, there's something you can do. Right, this kind of helplessness is, isn't very helpful for anyone. Um, so that's the first thing. And then, then we always say, just start small. You know, there's no need to go out and, and transform your life overnight. Just, just start with a small uh, monthly saving amount and take it from there. Um, and it's really important to understand what you're doing. Uh, we, we touched on that earlier, but basically anything that's complicated that you don't understand is probably too dangerous for mm. you to jump into, all right? Um, and then there's the standard financial advice. So spend less than you earn, uh, invest the difference, uh, and then, you know, in 20, 30 years' time, uh, you can send me a nice thank you email <laughs> when you're very comfortable. 
Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that is basic. And when you say invest, we, I mean, we can diversify and hedge and experiment and trial stuff, but it's really those core principles. I mean, like us, for example, we're mainly about real estate property here because this is what we know and this is what we're experienced with and comfortable with. So when we talk investment, it usually revolves around those topics, but then you can hedge within whichever, whichever sector you're invested in. You can always hedge and diversify in there. And whatever you find yourself drawn to, I mean, investment-wise, and there's probably a way in there somehow that you can better yourself financially if you focus on that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, basically, what you were talking about earlier, you know, diversification, mm. which is not putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, don't just buy one hot stock, for example. Um, I think the, the kind of poster child for this is uh, one of my wife's relatives who was working for an airline at the time. Um, and his wife put all their money into that airline stock. Right. And that airline happened to go bankrupt, so the stock went to zero. He was laid off, and basically they they went from being very well off and uncomfortable to you know struggling. That's terrible. And that was a complete lack of diversification. Mm, <laughs> basically, that, that's horrible. And, and I agree, I mean, wh whatever your sector is, you have to strike that balance and between education and experimentation. I mean, it's, any investment will carry some risk, um, but you definitely shouldn't be jumping into it and throwing money at it without understanding it well enough to recognize those risks. Um, and on the other hand, that some people don't really invest, though, right? They collect those um, savings, let's say, and they put them in a term deposit or under the mattress, as we used to say, and just sit on the fence and read and think about what to invest in. And waiting for the right time, the right climate. I mean, at some point, you do have to start doing something, don't you? Yes, yeah. I think starting is, is the main sticking point for, for a lot of people because um, they're scared or, or they've been put off. And especially here in Japan, where I think this is a, a kind of hangover from the bubble years. But in society on in general, like for most normal people, investing is, is kind of scary. It's kind of dangerous. Um, it's it's really risky. So often, if you have a, a Japanese spouse, for example, um, they will be pretty much against any kind of stock market investing or, or that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's it's really easy to say, oh yeah, we should do that someday, <laughs> but and someday never comes. So pretty sobering advice from Ben Sheeran there at Retire Japan. Start your investment journey. Don't just give in to the challenges or analysis paralysis or overthink it. Start small, if you will, but do start. Reduce your expenses so that you've got something, anything really to put aside for this purpose. And of course, diversify, hedge your portfolio. Try to gain exposure to different sectors or geographic or socioeconomic profiles, what have you, and slowly build up your passive income. I, I don't really like to use that term because there's nothing passive about um, building, maintaining, and fine-tuning your portfolio. It does take time and effort. But just make your money work for you in whatever way you're comfortable with so that when the time does come for you to stop working, whether it's sooner or later, you will have the infrastructure in place to do so. Okay, so for those of us who are comfortable investing in real estate, whether directly or through various vehicles, which is obviously anyone listening to this podcast... What are the advantages and disadvantages of these various methods that are open to us? So there's direct ownership of property, different types of rentals, capital growth profits, rental income profits, or cash flow. And then there are also companies that you can invest in, whether it's directly by owning them yourself or parts of them, such as stocks and shares in various developers or housing providers. One of the more popular vehicles out there are REITs, so Real Estate Investment Trusts, REIT. These are publicly traded funds which purchase and profit from various forms of real estate investment. Japan's also got quite a diverse selection of REITs. They're known as J-REITs here. And in this next episode, which has been downloaded hundreds of times already, this is a recording of a business call with a first-time investor again. And we discussed the various differences, advantages, and disadvantages of direct ownership of real estate property in Japan or bricks and mortar as opposed to investing in JREITs, Japan's uh, real estate investment trusts. So the episode was called Bricks versus REITs, and here are some highlights from that conversation. What, um, what do you feel like is the, the, unique, so, uh, in, the unique points of investing in either REITs or real estate? What, what are the, the pros and cons as someone that 
well, I guess, coming from the, the real estate side of things? Uh, well, the biggest reason that people usually opt for real estate is um, just to have control, right? When you're investing in a REIT, the, the company and the properties that they buy and what they do is not really anything that you have any effect on. Um, so your due diligence and your your ability to influence the investments sort of boils down to which REIT to pick kind of thing. Um, whereas when you own the property itself, you've got the uh, flexibility and the option to be more creative with it. You can decide what to do with it. You can decide um, if you want to improve its value somehow and then sell it. Um, those sort of yeah. things you just can't do with a REIT. It's like a stock. You just, you know, when you invest in a company, true, yeah. they do what they want. And the advantages of the REITs are like, um, anything that's not real estate is it's a lot more liquid right? so that can be an advantage if you need urgent cash for anything or you've got something better to put your cash into but it can be a disadvantage as it sort of it can encourage you to, to join the herd mentality right so the price goes down you panic you sell you're not going to be able to do that as quickly if you're actually owning a property yeah and so it's not a matter of a few clicks it'll take you a month or two to sell it which gives you time to think and cool down um, but yeah. again, liquidity is, is a bonus for a lot of people. If you do want to be able to move your money around more freely, then you, you and also the affordability, right? You can buy into a REIT for a few thousand bucks, whereas a minimum price for a property would be twenty thirty. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And um, you can, you can insure it. That's the other thing. You can insure your property, which is there's no insurance for stock investments. Right. Another thing I was thinking of is um, I'm actually a homeowner out here. Um, where I'm based so uh, in terms of saving on tax if you if you purchase a rental property and it reaches a certain age then you can use that against you can basically what's the word uh, claim deductions and depreciations yeah that's a depreciation you can yeah. depreciate the, the building that's something you can't do with REITs I guess as well um, no, plus Sorry. everything that you've spent on purchase costs you can carry forward for three years, which again is not there's not that many purchase costs when you're buying stocks. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, just bear in mind that you know tax deductions means you've actually spent money on something, right? So this is true. Yeah, yeah it's not. I mean, it's it's great if you're paying if you're paying zero taxes. It just means that your net income hasn't gone up that much. That's all. Uh, I guess you've got leverage with uh, insurance. Uh, sorry, with real estate as well. In that you can afford, you can you, you can buy something of much greater value. As in taking a loan, you mean? Correct. Yeah. Um, yes. Although I heard, I have heard that stock investors can do that too. Um, I'm not sure about Japan, but banks do lend against the stock portfolio as well. Interesting. Mm. Um, I, I was thinking um, the. I mean, real estate in, in Japan versus other countries is obviously a, a topic. Um, I, I'm a UK citizen, obviously. Uh, you can tell my, from my voice. But um, uh, the reason that I'm looking at Japan real estate over things like American real estate is it's just probably going to be easier for me to purchase out here. Well, considering I already have a loan as well uh, on a house. So... Um, well, I, mean, I think you can get a loan for investing almost anywhere in the world these days. I probably <laughs> probably look at other factors. Um, what usually draws people here is um, the tenants are far less of a hassle than in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they can be a hassle in the sense that you know it's an aging society and they sometimes die in the property. But there's not there's not going to be drug labs, explosions, squatters. Uh, if you get <laughs> Payment issues, you just send send them a letter and off they go. There's no forced evictions or court appearances in most cases. Okay. Um, and the affordability is another thing. So you can buy places usually a lot cheaper. You, the U.S. had a, a good run uh, between the uh, the Lehman crash and up until about 2012-13. Right. And, but now it's gone up again, so it's not as attractive. I see. And um, also the professionals that you deal with here, I mean, the property managers, the renovation repair specialists, the uh, real estate agents are just like the tenants, you know, they're Japanese, they don't, they're not going to have any reliability issues. They might not be, you know, as professional as others, but they're not going to screw you or steal your money or anything like that. Right, right. Um, which is another advantage. But it's a rental. It's a rental income, um, cash flow oriented investment here. I mean, 
if prices go up, it'll be great, but it's not something that we recommend our customers bank on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been good the last four or five years, but that's on the back of, you know, 25 odd years of deflation. So it's, I, I wouldn't recommend that anybody consider that a main criteria when they choose properties. So, I mean, as an investment, Japanese real estate, you think, I mean, c compared to other options like REITs and stocks and things like that, what's your own personal, I mean, I guess you're a bit biased because you are already investing in Japanese real estate, but how about I ask you the question then, why, why, why do you invest in Japanese real estate as opposed to other things? Like, what, what's the strength, the strength for you? All those things that you just mentioned about low household tenants, affordability, insurance, that kind of thing? Well, to start off with, I mean, uh, we had to specialize in something when we started investing, and that's been our journey for the last seven, eight years, and now we are actually thinking of diversifying into stocks as well. Interesting. Um, but it, it's really a case-by-case -case or investor-by-investor -investor scenario. That's why the first question I was asking you is if you've got any other um, assets that you're invested in. Yeah, um, well, not particularly. That, that would be my only... Uh, my, my genuine answer would be that I'm fairly new to the whole idea of investing my money in anything, to be honest. So, well, I'd which say, is why, yeah. I'd say diversity is the most important thing, right? So if you've got mm -hmm. several high-risk, let's say you've got um, 20, 30% of your investment cash invested in um, higher-risk items, then you want the next 40, 50% of your cash to be invested in lower-risk items. You want to spread them out. Um, industry-wise, sector-wise, geographically, socioeconomically. So the, the more um, the more baskets guess, you've got yeah. for your eggs, kind of thing, the, the better the better chances you've got of weathering any storm that one particular sector. Yeah. yeah, it's again, it's about finding your personal sweet spot as far as uh, risk and budget and yield requirements yeah. go. You know, you you just you. you you decide how much you want to invest, you decide what's the, um, what's the minimum return that you want to get, and then you see what's the best that you can get for those criteria. So there you have it, bricks versus REITs, advantages, disadvantages to both, depending on your needs or lack of needs uh, for hands-on management, liquidity, affordability, and so forth. And again, diversity and hedging are really the key to any successful portfolio. So you find your comfort zone or several comfort zones, and then you try to diversify as much as you can within those. Now, we've mentioned our webinar coming up early next month, and this is going to be an online version of some of the physical seminars that we've had in places like Tokyo, Fukuoka, Brisbane, Australia, and so forth. And the next episode, which a lot of you seem to have liked, actually the most popular one we've had on the podcast to date, was a seminar that we gave in Tokyo in July last year. So the seminar itself was about an hour long, and we talked about a whole bunch of things. One of the most interesting topics that we've covered uh, was location selection. So how to choose which areas or cities in Japan to invest in. So here's that section from episode 75, a recording of our Tokyo Real Estate Property Investing Seminar in July 2019. Okay, so how do we go about um, picking those locations that will be attractive for us? So obviously population growth is a big thing. And population growth can be um, of three kinds. So firstly, there's organic growth, people actually having babies. Not many cities in Japan where that's uh, on the plus side. So uh, Fukuoka is one of them, Fukui up north is one of them, although there's not that many deals there. Um, there's Kawasaki, I think, is still experiencing organic growth because it's uh, considered a very popular residential area. A lot of people are moving in there and starting families. Most other places in Japan, if the population is growing, it's for two other reasons. So one reason is, again, conglomeration. is smaller townships dying out, people moving into large metropolitan centers or larger metropolitan centers. And that's probably going to, unless anything in the demographics changes drastically, that's probably going to continue for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, as all these small villages and towns will disappear and the population will be more centralized. And the last reason is if there's migration for any reason. So, for example, after the uh, uh, Tohoku disaster in 2011, a lot of people wanted to get as far away from uh, that area and even from Tokyo as they could. And cities like uh, Nagoya, Osaka, Fukuoka uh, all enjoyed large swaths of migration as a result of that. In other cases, migration occurs because of uh, some sort of economic trend. So, down in southern Kyushu, for example, uh, again, following the 2011 disaster, we had a large uh, we had a large boom 
and people moving into that area to work in the renewable energy industry, which is getting a lot of uh, generous subsidies from the government at that point. And that also kicked off migration. If there's, uh, for any reason, a hospitality resort that was set up, a lot of people go and work there. So you often see more or less temporary uh, increases in population that are due to economic reasons as well. Um, so of these locations, and this is just a partial list, um, if you'll have a look um, on Wikipedia and a few of the Japanese um, population census websites, if you can read Japanese, um, you'll find places where the population is actually increasing. You have to watch out for um, fake increases. So if you see a place that's actually gone up in population, say, double digits in over four or five years, that's probably a not real increase in population. Uh, what that is is towns being cancelled out officially and conglomerated, not physically people moving to the bigger city, but the smaller townships just being deleted as actual uh, municipal centers and all being uh, pulled together under one central city. So anything that you see that's gone over then, let's say, 8 or 9% over a period of 4 or 5 years, probably not real population increase. But if you look a little bit further down the list, anything from 8, 9% over five years and below is places where the population is increasing for any reason. So of those places, um, Sapporo not included. Population is actually not increasing in Sapporo at the moment, but it still features some of the highest yield of the big cities. So Sapporo is about two million people, which is I think fifth or sixth in size in Japan. And property prices there, although they have inched up slightly, have not gone up and nearly as sharply as they have in other places for various reasons. And you can still get very high yield, high rental yields there in comparison with other places. So again, seven, eight years ago, you could get 11, 12, 13 net pre-tax um, in many, many cities. These days, if you're looking at uh, the other cities on this list, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, and other cities that we'll talk about in a moment, um, the most you'll be able to get there, and that's not going to be so central either, is going to be 7 or 8% net pre-tax. In Sapporo, for some reason, you can still get 9 to 10% net pre-tax. Prices there just haven't picked up as significantly. Uh, Fukuoka is a rising star in the sense that it's the gateway to Western Japan. And the, um, the mayor and the prefectural governor there have done a very good work on putting the place on the map as far as uh, innovation, incoming tourism, startups, uh, entrepreneurial spirit goes. So it's known as uh, Japan's startup capital. In practice, in reality, Tokyo is still doing much more uh, startups and entrepreneurial activity than Fukuoka is, but Fukuoka has got the vibe, it's got the, uh, it's got the uh, PR, and it's, it's grasped as such a place. It's also a place where the population is a lot younger than in other places, so they are organically growing. People are more transient there, so from a, a landlord perspective, for example, Fukuoka tenants tend to move out a lot more often than tenants in other cities because they've got a new job, they're relocating to another company, they're relocating to another city, they're moving overseas, they're coming back from overseas, but vacancies get filled up very, very quickly. So it's a sort of what you'd expect from any modern vibe, um, youngish, modernish city around the world. Uh, property prices have nearly doubled there in the last uh, four or five years, so returns again went down from about 12-13% eight years ago to now 7% at most, but still returns are much higher than Osaka and Tokyo, and property prices still have a lot of room to grow there. So in Tokyo, for instance, or Osaka these days as well, you can get your entry level to the market, even if you're talking about a single mansion apartment that's maybe... 30, 35, even 40 years old, usually the entry level in Tokyo and Osaka is about 7, 8 million yen, so about 60, 65,000 US dollars. In Fukuoka, for example, you can still get these places for as low as 3, 3.5 million, so they've still got a lot of room to grow, even though they have grown quite significantly in recent years. Uh, Nagoya has been growing uh, along with the rest of the cities, not as quickly. But these days, mainly due to the new um, bullet train line that's been put in place, or that's going to be put in place, I think, very shortly, uh, which will make uh, transit time much shorter from Tokyo to Nagoya and back. And also another aspect of that is that they're tearing down a lot of houses along those new tracks. 
and that uh, pushes uh, occupancies very high in the city center and in the most popular suburbs. So Nagoya has been starting to uh, exhibit price increases that most likely will continue for the next two or three years. Uh, Kyoto has gone up nice and stable throughout the years. Doesn't tend to drop much at all. And at the moment, it's a very, very popular city for tourists to the point where um, Kyotoites are a little bit sick and tired of seeing our faces on the street there. And so it's a very good place if you're looking for, uh, as we'll get to in a bit, um, monthly leases or short-term leases uh, of Airbnb-style guest houses, share houses. We can still see a few good deals come out of there, um, but not as many as we used to. And lastly, the places where we can still get uh, high potential return, uh, even these days, and very affordable prices are satellite cities, bedroom communities. So uh, places around Tokyo, for example, anywhere on the, um, on the line to Narita and back, the metropolitan part of Chiba, Hachiyoji, uh, Chofu, Machida, Sagamihara, places near Osaka, like Higashi, Osaka, Amagasaki. So anywhere that you see a um, smaller town that's within 45 minutes or one hour by train from a big metropolitan center, that's a bedroom community or a satellite city. And those places will usually have um, easy tenanting capabilities and high returns, but prices there have not gone up much, which again is a reason for those high returns. You might not be able to bank on huge growth there uh, if the rest of the country does well, but you will always have stable tenancies and you will always have uh, reasonable rental returns. Satellite cities, by the way, can be big places too. So Kawasaki is sort of a satellite city to Tokyo. Uh, Yokohama may be pushing it because it's Japan's second biggest city. Kobe and next to Osaka is also a kind of satellite city, even though it's got its own, definitely got its own economic center and everything. Uh, so those places and prefectural capitals. So if you look at uh, Kumamoto, for example, down in Kyushu, uh, Fukuoka itself, if you look at places like um, in uh, Shikoku, Tokushima, or Ehime, so places that are the only big main city, Sendai, for example, up north, the only big main city in any particular prefecture, that's always a good uh, rental return driver and always stable for tenancies. Whether, again, prices will go up there or not, not as likely as the rest of the country, but a possibility. Location, location, location. The prime rule of real estate anywhere in the world, definitely in Japan as well. So hopefully a good, um, although a bit on the short side, um, guide to what you can expect from every type of city and location in Japan, at least as far as rental income and tenant base is concerned. Now, speaking of location, while cities are definitely good as far as tenants are concerned, um, Japan's countryside is the place to be if you're interested in tourism. And as you've heard in some of these previous episode highlights, Many of our clients these days are looking deeply into holiday properties in the Japanese countryside, which are often sold very cheaply for various reasons. So either due to owners retiring, wanting a change of scenery or lifestyle and so forth, or because the properties have been um, mismanaged in any way. And we've had a series of episodes in which we examined a potential hotel deal, traditional Japanese yokan or inn in Nagano, some of the country's uh, best ski slopes and winter sport meccas. So this next episode is the second one in the series in which we are discussing due diligence factors that are unique to hotel or hospitality properties. So Paul, uh, Paul Feinberg, our partner at Pacific Business KK in Tokyo, whose company specializes in managing these hospitality properties, joins us for a conversation with a potential investor who is interested in purchasing said hotel. And there were some very interesting points brought up in the call, which seem to have struck a chord with many of you um, as far as download numbers are concerned. So here's episode two of our hotel deal sample series. And this one's all about due diligence for hospitality properties. Let's just summarize what's the extra information that we want from the owners at this stage. So you, you're asking about... Um, you're asking about... Um, potential forward bookings, right? So we want to know exactly um, how much and for which dates they've got advanced bookings in the system. Was there right. was there anything else that we want to ask them? Beyond and it's possible. I think it, it will be great to uh, get more detailed uh, operational information about the last season. 
say, for example, the occupancy, the rental, etc., etc., because that's really something. I've added, uh, I've added a couple of files. Uh, I've added a couple of files to the folder. I think I might have not sent you an update, but there are a couple of files that I've added to the folder that got the um, occupancy report for 2018 and 2019. That's ah, okay. A, there's a PDF there that has that. Um, but similar to the income, it's not spectacular. So don't don't expect any uh, any pleasant surprises there. <laughs> Is do the current future booking cover the current the normal expected operating expenses for the next season? Right. Yes. So we definitely want to see what the forward bookings in their system that they've got are and for how long. I mean, I'm guessing if somebody booked for this coming season, that's probably going to have low cancellation rates. But if someone's booking in advance for um, not this season, but the next one, we shouldn't probably count on that because there are going to be some cancellations, I'm guessing. Right. But if you could implement any kind of even, in, in, um, you know, just even the basic, get the marketing and, and the promotion going, even at a very small level, and you could, you know, bring it up to maybe $6 million the, instead of $4 million, uh, um, what did you say, Zid? Did you say 40 or 4? You said 4, right? 4. They said 4 million in advance bookings. I'm not sure if it's just for one season. So if you or... could bring that even up to 6, if I remember correctly, based on what you told me the operating expenses were, uh, that would put the place into the black, at least, barely. Um, yeah, I think from there, let me just open that file again. I think their operating expenses for the last year. Just give me a sec. Um were it's about six million six yen, million I yes that's right operating expenses yeah so 4.3 for the year ending and yeah about six million so yeah so i mean if and, and i understand important the most important question but um that's not a huge increase to make the place you know at least break even that's a that's a small number yep and also, I'm not sure if all of these expenses can be uh, somehow reduced. That's, again, something we'll have to see in the site survey. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the other critical question is about the uh, timing of, uh, say, uh, applying for the license. That maybe the current owners could share their experience drafts because if, I think it's critical to assess uh, if we can really make the... Uh, business operational for the coming season, which is just a few months away. So uh, if uh, we can still, you know, uh, capture the business in the upcoming season, certainly it will affect the uh, valuation of uh, the whole thing. Um, yeah. The business license itself doesn't take too long, but the, uh, I mean, to set up the company, sorry, doesn't take too long. Um, Paul, assuming that the place is already um, compliant from your experience, how long does it take to apply for the uh, budget hotel license? Really varies based on the location and the government officials involved. They can be very, very accommodating and they can be complete jerks. Um, but to answer your question the best that I can, approximately a month, month and a half. Okay, so it's definitely doable before the next ski season at least. Yeah, but it would be tight, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that that's um, that's enough questions okay. for them, and I'll also I'll also ask them how long it took them to get the uh, food and beverage license because that's the other main component. Zim, yep. If, if they already have a hotel license, why is it necessary to apply for a different category of hotel license? I'm not sure I'm following that part. Well, they've mentioned um, their emails mentioned that definitely the food and beverage license is not transferable. Um, whether that includes the hotel license or not, I'm not sure. Because you're right, that's per property, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you use the Ryokan Gyo to basically take an apartment building and change it into uh, a simple, uh, what do they call it? Um, <clears throat> simple lodging budget hotel so that you can operate short term with, with short term uh, reservations 365 days a year. But in this case, you already have a hotel that must be licensed and allows operations 365 days a year. I don't see why there would be any additional licensing requirement, to be honest. Okay, so why isn't the hotel license transferable? Um, they might be just wrong about that. They said that that's what their lawyer told them, so I went with that, but they could be wrong. 
So I'll look into that as well. Any other questions? Um, no, but just that's, uh, that's one final comment. I mean, even if the hotel license isn't transferable, I mean, it should be a very simple process to allow a new owner to essentially obtain the same license, completely different than the Rio Con Gil process, which is a bit of a headache. Um, this this is an existing property was built for as and registered as a hotel, whereas in the instances of all the other properties where you do a Minpaku license or a Rio Kangyo license, you're actually filing for a change of use. And that's why you have to get the fire department, the architect, and the uh, health department involved. In the current case, you're not filing for a change of use. That's a whole different thing. It's much, much, much better. Okay. Filing for a change of use of a property and getting approval is more or less a nightmare. Gotcha. So this we, property, mm -hmm, yes. So, sorry, go ahead. This property already was built under the current purpose of use. You don't have to file for a change of use. You're simply changing ownership. Okay, so we want to know exactly what kind of license they currently have, and then we want to check maybe with our own legal team um, if that's transferable or not. that in Japan in 2019 that they don't have a system whereby one party sells a business and another party buys a business and all the operational rights of the business, you know, are easily obtained by the purchasing party. It just wouldn't make any sense. Okay, we'll, we'll look into that. They might have just gotten the wrong legal advice or they might be referring to something else and I misunderstood. So we'll have a look into that. Okay. All right, so that's probably it for now. I'll get back to you with um, uh, answers to uh, any other questions as I get them. So there you have it. Hotels, um, like any other property-related business, as opposed to your um, straight-out vanilla type of investments, is really a completely different kettle of fish as far as due diligence is concerned. So you're going to be interested in a lot more than just the property basics, location, condition, etc., you're also going to look at operational aspects of the business and its potential. So past, current, future, which could make or break your investment, particularly in the countryside where population is declining and tourists are all you've got. So it's going to be far more difficult to resell a property in the countryside if it's not generating substantial income, as opposed to in the city where anybody buying a property um, would automatically assume that they could lease it out. Now, speaking of cheap properties, there's a general concept among many first-time buyers um, that Japan's declining population also means that there are properties here practically given away, or at least being sold very, very cheaply. And while that can be the case, these are in most cases not properties that would be generating any income, or at least not without some serious work that would bring the total price tag um, up to similar if not higher than any of the fully functional non-abandoned properties that it's up against deal-wise. So in this following recording of a business conversation with a first-time investor, we review and debunk some of these misconceptions and hopefully save these would-be investors a few bucks in the process. And I just, I wanna, could I just ask you a, a few questions just to help me understand what exactly it is that you're looking for? Is it okay? Because you've mentioned a budget of approximately two million, and I'm guessing the houses that you're looking at uh, would probably be very old houses. Yeah. And I'm guessing that you're saying that they've got high returns, meaning I'm guessing that they're probably tenanted at the moment, correct? Um, no. From what I've been reading from using Google Translate and stuff, I don't believe these properties are tenanted at the moment. Okay, and. You're naturally assuming, because with houses, number one, they're not as easy to um, to put tenants into as uh, units are. And number two, um, an old house that would be priced so low would most likely need a little bit of work or a lot of work before you can actually put tenants into them. Just hope that you're aware of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Your, two million, your two million could turn into five or six million. I mean, they're, they're really very old. They're not going to have any insulation, and I'm, I'm just not sure. Do you, did you see interior picks in those listings? Some of them do have interior picks. Um, the one that did reply from Osaka, that one's actually been renovated already. So they, they said they expect to be completed in October, which is October now. 
Um, and the house that we've seen in Saitama looks to be in really good condition, but I'm not sure about insulation and things like that. Okay, and that one that was renovated still goes for $2 million, even with the renovation? Um, $1.8 million, yeah. That's it's, very it's impressive. It's not overly large, and it's right on the outskirts of Osaka, yeah. like towards the mountain. Okay, and did you look at... Well, I mean, we, we can do all of this for you if you want us to... Um, I mean, we're happy to just proceed with the listings that you've highlighted, or are we happy to do a bit more digging into them, or are we happy to show you alternative listings? It's up to you, but just make sure that we look at the... Um, just stuff that would make it easier to tenant. So exactly what was done with the renovation, how far of a walk it is to the nearest uh, public transport, or if it's a far off, uh, if it's a far away uh, walk, then make sure that it's got a parking spot so you get a family in there that has a car and doesn't care. Um, just sort of basic due diligence uh, items, and just again be aware that with houses. There's no fixed monthly fees that cover the exterior or the structure like there is with an individual unit. So anything that needs to be done in the house is going to be on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if I sent you the list of what we're looking at, I might have a quick look to find if there's any new ones that have popped up. Would you be able to have a look into those and give us your opinion and possibly have a quick chat with the agents? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean... We, there's a limit to what we can do before being engaged, but we can have a quick look and we can have a quick call to the agent and just let you know if they're open to um, to continue the process on these particular listings. And then if for yeah. any reason we can't proceed or you choose not to proceed with those, then before we actually start researching new properties, we will have to be properly engaged. Yep. Well, we're, we're more than happy to sign engagement. Yep. Now, the, um, the 5% plus tax, now, if we have you look at, say, four or five properties, um, that 5% plus tax is only on the property purchase? Yeah, that 5% that covers you until you end up settling at that budget. So we can look at 100 properties if you want. Fine, good, yep, that sounds terrific. Um, also, um, you would see whether the property needs any kind of renovation. If it does, would you be able to organise that? Um, well, what we'll see, we'll be seeing on paper, and then when we visit, we'll be able to see a little bit more than that. But if you want anything structural, you will have to hire a building inspector to have a look at it. If it was structural, I'm going to say it'd probably be too much like hard work. I, I'm sort of looking at something, maybe just a repaint or even a new sink or something, but quite simple renovation. Yeah, but the thing is, we wouldn't yeah, know. We wouldn't know if there's anything structural until we get an inspector. So if there's something wrong with the roof, we're not going to be able to climb up there and have a look at that. Um, okay, yeah, and yeah. if there's something, you know, in the walls, I mean, we can try to spot moisture or holes or stuff like that. But to actually have a good look at walls or cables or pipes and stuff like that, you do need the building inspector. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. What What do you think? Uh, let, let, let's just say I send you the email When you say this is what next weekend? Yep. Yeah. So we'll have we'll be there all day Friday, Saturday, and most of Monday as well until the evening. This is Friday, Saturday, first, second November, yeah. Um, look, if the agent is responsible, if the agent is responsive, it's doable. I mean, they're there and they've got listings. But if he takes uh, any convincing, or if um, if he doesn't respond or anything, I just can't tell you. I mean, look, if he's open, if he's open to dealing with foreigners because he answered your emails, and then you know he might be now a bit shy because he doesn't understand everything that you've written to him, and then somebody Japanese contacts him and says, "Don't worry about it. You can talk to a Japanese company about it." Then you know that might be all that it takes to just convince him to go ahead. Um, but I, I just don't know. I don't know who the agent is, so it's hard for me to say. Yeah, at this point, I don't see the point of uh, booking flights if uh, until he actually contacts you or, yeah. or until he contacts someone. Well, I mean, look, we can definitely. I can definitely say that even if those particular properties are not available, we can help you look for other ones. Um, but whether we'll find anything that would be interesting enough for you before um, the end of next week, I just cannot tell you before we actually search for them, especially at that limited budget that you're discussing. I'm guessing there's not too many of them on the market. 
Okay, and now for the final episode in today's compilation, we're going to take you just a few weeks back to our annual 2019 summary report on Japan's real estate market performance last year, trend statistics, as well as some projections for 2020, based on industry expert reports, surveys, opinions, and presented by Pretty Donnelly, our sales and marketing manager here at NTI. Well, the 2019 market has certainly evolved. We see the traditional work, the traditional work culture of large corporations changing to one of startups and small businesses with the need for work life balance, which we've never seen before, including share office space for shortened, more convenient commutes, and hence the reason for developments of office space in rural areas. The grand scale tourism push as Tokyo hosts the Summer Olympics. Now, that's the big one.、Right. This is what is impacting the hotel sector. The government intends on generating tourism and convention revenue from hotels and meeting spaces to boost visitors to 60 million, 60 million annual visitors by 2030.、Yeah. Hotel occupancy has been at 80% on average in 2019. In Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto. There is also interest in onsen and yokan properties, which are natural hot spring resorts. And these are undervalued after experiencing recession and mismanagement. These have become hot investment targets for personal use seasonally and then as a resort villa the rest of the year. And another point of interest that I wanted to mention、uh, for this sector is that the, the government is planning to invest in casinos、yes. for gaming revenue. This has the potential to become Asia's second largest gambling market after Macau. So, part of the reason commercial development, ski resorts, and golf courses are also doing so well is that Japan's land prices rose for the second straight year. With the increase spreading beyond your typical big cities. So, to give you an idea, while the average yield for ski resorts has been around 5%, in Niseko, properties have reached yields of 7% at times. So, this is in Niseko. And those who prefer to hibernate in the winter, it's not for everyone, they'll be interested to know that Olympic golf at the Tokyo Games in 2020 is attracting investment. So, yeah. The resort market is really doing well. So, I mean, that, that's an established trend now, isn't it? I mean, lots of people were still concerned because of those two deca- decades of、uh, deflations and recession that kind of ended back in 2013. And we have had some pull and jerk cycles since then. So, prices have gone up, but only in major cities. And then they flattened out a bit again. Then a couple of cities went up and then they stalled again. But Now it's definitely a thing, isn't it? I mean, prices are going up not just in Tokyo and Osaka, but nationwide. I mean, which are the best performers、uh, of the cities? Which are the most exciting ones to look into? I would say Nagoya, one of Japan's main industrial and commercial metropolitan centers. Firstly, it's conveniently located between Tokyo and Osaka, and soon to be the beneficiary of the newest and fastest bullet train from Tokyo. Uh, the bullet train line. It has performed well with 75% occupancies for office properties. And get this, even more impressive is the grade A office space at a historical high occupancy of 99.4%. Oh, wow. Yeah. A, a new supply of commercial properties is expected to hit the market in 2020. And this will make it easier for tenants to secure space in the office sector. But really, with the bullet trains opening in 2027 to connect Tokyo with Nagoya and Osaka in 40 minutes and 67 minutes, respectively, this city is the one to watch.、Mm-hmm. Now, Osaka, Nagoya, Fukuoka, they were previously considered second tier markets, meaning they provided higher yields but lower liquidity and relatively a small section, a small selection of deals.、Mm-hmm. These cities now have established themselves as extremely viable markets in both the residential and commercial sectors. Nagoya and Fukuoka offer yields generally higher by at least 1 to 2% when compared with Tokyo, Yokohama, and Osaka. So 
an ideal choice even for the most risk-averse investor. Okay, so that all sounds super positive. Um, any flies in the ointment? I mean, we keep seeing some pretty grim numbers as far as population and the workforce goes. Is that still a concern? Any other challenges the market here is facing? Well, it's no secret that Japan has one of the worst demographic outlooks of any nation in the world with its aging and declining population. The aging population... however, has opened up a need for nursing homes, day-to-day care, long-term accommodation services. But then here's the problem. With a shortage of workers, Japan has been forced to, for the first time, start issuing visas in the hope of attracting more workers. So this is a major policy shift. Now, similarly, also moving away from tradition in 2019, Is the retail sector as a, as a direct result of online shopping happening everywhere in the world. Domestic trading companies are picking up whatever retail centers they can. So it makes it difficult um, for foreign investors to find opportunities um, in retail. Also, rents have been trending lower. And of course, the 10% consumption tax from 8% is not helping the retail sector either. Yeah. Yeah. But one appeal of the, um, the resulting and rising e-commerce sector is that an economic downturn or even a mild recession isn't likely to dampen growth significantly, considering the demand of online services. And for this reason, investment in logistics facilities is considered to be a much more reliable, stable investment, and it will be for many years to come. I find it particularly interesting that the appeal in this sector is to the point where developers are still building these facilities without pre-commitments or leases from potential tenants. Right, right, gotcha. So senior living warehouses, shipping facilities, um, I think we've heard about these in the last year's summaries as well. So there's still a fantastic strategy for anyone who wants to um, also first buy land and then start profiting from it slowly, but without putting too much capital in there uh, from the get-go. I mean, storage and shipping hangars are pretty cheap to construct compared with residential or office blocks and shopping malls and so forth, aren't they? Japan, along with South Korea and Australia, are the first Asia-Pacific nations to begin the rollout of the 5G network. Yeah. And so as a result of the voracious appetite for data and cloud computing, data centers emerged as 2019's favorite niche sector. Right, data centers too, yeah. Yeah, this is an affordable market for smaller scale commercial investors. As the sites are both affordable and generally not very big physically or in value. Property markets are starting to focus on efficiencies and customer convenience. Efficient smart buildings, as I alluded to earlier, will reduce costs and collect occupancy-related data. So we're going to see a lot more of this. Under this concept, retail landlords will have the ability to use customer loyalty apps, which can be used for parking, ordering food, while larger office investors in the region are experimenting with apps to allow tenants to book facilities and services. There will be apps to control air conditioning, heating, lighting, security, Uh, building performance and eventually transmit data required for efficient processing of traffic, waste, water, power. Stay tuned. I will have some updates on this. Okay. And then what about the other uh, big trends from last year? So logistics, definitely still a hot sector. How about um, shared offices? I mean, everyone was hailing that as the next big thing last year. There it is. Yep. Still Um, uh, definitely still demand in these sectors, but following the WeWork failed IPO and then subsequent sale, people are more careful as far as choosing the right operators for those projects. We're in touch with some good operators and hope to get some more projects off the ground this year if we can. Good stuff. So is there anything aside from the demographics, which we've already mentioned, um, anything stopping Japan from continuing to gain traction, just continuing to be a top investment destination this year too? As popular as the market is with affordable prices and attractive yield, 
the drawback is the language barrier. Contracts and documents such as um, rental data are still only in Japanese. And for this reason, the way investors access this market is, if you don't know Japanese, is through the services of buyers' agencies and proxy portfolio managers like, like us. English speaking and able to communicate in Japanese to realtors, lawyers, and professional staff on behalf of our clients. A couple of things I want to emphasize. One, there are very few restrictions on foreigners buying property in Japan. And two, the business environment is fully documented, legal recourse entrenched, and those remain some of the most attractive features of the market. All right. Well, if you've made it this far, you're obviously got a lot of interest in what we do here at NTI. So first and foremost, thank you for your dedication and for tuning in. We really appreciate your interest. And as usual, we'd appreciate it even more if you could share a podcast with your own networks or leave us a rating or a review on the iTunes store to help us reach even more people who could benefit from it. Um, one topic we haven't featured highlights from in this episode is the potential for financing uh, investment loans. Not because we haven't covered it or because it hasn't interested you, based on your downloads it definitely did, but simply because there have been some developments and more information now available in this field. So rather than re-feature some of these old recordings, we're going to soon have an interview with a mortgage broker who specializes in these loans, and they're going to give us all of the updates in that arena. So stay tuned and watch this space. Now, again, if you've made it this long, you're obviously interested. So again, we'd really recommend you uh, go to the show notes and just listen to the full episodes of whichever topic interested you specifically in this compilation. Do join our webinar as well, which we're going to link to in the show notes. Or if you prefer a more one-on-one -on -one approach and to discuss your particular needs and circumstances in a more private setting, don't be shy to drop us a line on info at nippontradings.com. That's info at mark n i double p o n tradings with an s nippon tradings all one word dot com or just hit us up on facebook or instagram we've got a japan real estate group under that name japan real estate on facebook and um, again just plain old japan real estate all one word on instagram and we'll book a voice or video chat call with you free of charge of course we always love talking shop to dive deeper into whichever topic you'd like to discuss and get our advice on so that's it from us today. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, we wish you as always a great day or evening. Yoshiku.